All right, so we're doing another open study tonight, and um, got some good questions ahead of us. Uh, I don't know how many of the questions I'll be able to cover tonight. Uh, I'll cover a bare minimum of two, possibly as many as four, just depending upon how long I take for each one, of course. And then, uh, Lord willing, next next Thursday night we'll do another open study, as I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, but for tonight, we're going to start in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 37, with a question about the temple of God, as it is mentioned here in Ezekiel's prophecy. The person that wrote this question was referencing a specific verse in Ezekiel 37, and it's the very last couple of verses of the chapter. Ezekiel 37 Verses 27 and 28, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to Israel. Uh, Keep in mind that this was during a time uh, Ezekiel lived during and prophesied during a time in which Israel was under the well-deserved judgment of the Lord and had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire and by King Nebuchadnezzar specifically and carried away into captivity. And Ezekiel was one of those who was living in captivity in Babylon. And the Lord appeared to him, revealed himself to Ezekiel in that captivity circumstance, and then spoke to him and revealed to him the what later Ezekiel wrote down as the book of Ezekiel. And so they're in Babylon. The context is they're in Babylon. And this, this is a portion in which the Lord is referencing something that will never happen in Babylon, but it is a prophecy about the temple of God, which of course is in Jerusalem. Now the problem in terms of the current temple circumstance was that the temple had been devastated in Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Israel and Jerusalem. And Here Ezekiel is addressing by the Spirit of God the future. So let me read verses 27 and 28. The Lord speaking, My dwelling place shall be with them. That's his people. He's speaking about his people. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, that would seem to be almost self-explanatory if it weren't for the context of what's going on, meaning the people of God have just experienced this devastating judgment from the Lord. And so there was questions in their heart about, is our covenant relationship with the Lord still, still sustained? Um, the Lord has allowed us to be conquered. He's allowed us to be enslaved by the Babylonians, carried away into captivity. Do we still have the, the blessing of a covenant relationship with him? And so in verse 27, the Lord is essentially saying, from his side, that covenant commitment has not changed. And there is still a future Uh, that the Lord has a purpose, a plan that he has for his people in that covenant relationship. Then verse 28, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, meaning the Lord's brief single word explanation for the judgment that Israel has experienced and is currently enduring. The Lord's explanation for that is it's a sanctification of Israel, meaning because of the Lord's judgment, it will arrest the heart's attention 
of a previously spiritually wayward people. And it will draw their hearts in their extremity of of a devastating circumstance. It will draw their heart's attention back to the Lord. So the Lord says, "The the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. And then this line, when my sanctuary, which is just one of the synonyms for the temple of God, when my sanctuary is in their midst, and then this key word, forevermore. So the person based upon this verse asks this question, since the temple slash sanctuary will never be built again, what sanctuary is being spoken of here? Now, I didn't have a chance to discuss this question with the person that asked the question, but I'm going to assume that their question and the way it was framed was based upon previous teaching that I've done for us regarding the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. And that is, I previously made definitive theological, eschatological statements about the future of the physical structure of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And my definitive statement is that the temple will never again, for all of time to come in our future, the temple will never again be built in the city of Jerusalem. Now, not all Christians believe that. In fact, a large segment of the Christian population believes and has been taught that there will be a temple built in the city of Jerusalem in the future. Uh, In fact, uh, the group that we've often interacted with in our studies of eschatology, and I don't mean directly interacted, but I mean just in the sense of, of presenting this alternative interpretation of eschatology and Bible prophecy, uh, the dispensationalist group expect there to be they expect there to be a future rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this is not as well known, but if you've studied dispensationalism at any detailed level like I have, they actually anticipate two future temples to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. To future to us, because right now, as I think everybody is pretty much aware, there is a city named Jerusalem on the same location as the ancient city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's still there. There's an old part of the town which is dating back literally hundreds of years into the past, but there's a new part of town as, as uh, a new part of the city as, as uh, you know, Israel was resettled and rebuilt starting in 1948 and a modernization of the rest of the city. And there is still what was known in ancient times as the Temple Mount, which is this prominent mountaintop um, on one side, on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. There's a temple mount, but there's, of course, no temple of God that's currently established on that mount. There was in ancient times, but in the events of 70 AD, as we've studied in some detail, that temple, as Jesus had prophesied and predicted, in Mark chapter 13, in Luke chapter 21, and in Matthew chapter 24, that temple was destroyed and was dismantled stone by stone so that there was literally nothing left. Uh, And that was done by, of course, the Roman legions when they reconquered the city of Jerusalem and the end of the siege that took place in 70 AD. 
uh, as the culmination of what was known as the Jewish War, uh, where there was a rebellion against the the, um, oppression of Rome. And the temple was devastated and, and removed as a result of that. Ever since then, there's never been a temple on that temple mount. Currently, there is a structure there on the temple mount, but it's a, it's a Muslim structure, a Muslim holy place and a holy structure. And um, there, is, um, there is, of course, significant resistance on the part of the Muslims to have that removed in order for a temple to be built on that site. Now, there you hear periodically uh, out of Israel some interest by certain uh, committed groups within the, the community of, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They would love to see the temple rebuilt. And of course, in the dispensational circles, there's a commitment to the idea that the temple must be rebuilt. And they're looking forward to that. And they're expecting there to be some devastating event that will take place in which that Jewish, I mean, excuse me, that uh, Islamic mosque will be destroyed and removed so that that Temple Mount can be, can be the uh, foundation for a new temple to be built. And as I'm saying, they actually anticipate two temples to one day be built on that site. One of which they believe Israel as a nation, modern day Israel, will build a temple to the Lord on that site, on that temple mount, once that mosque is removed. They believe that that temple will be rebuilt as the prelude to the events of their anticipated future seven-year Great Tribulation sequence of events leading immediately to the second coming of Christ. And without going back into too much detail, they believe that it's in that temple, that, that to-be-rebuilt temple, that halfway through their version of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will show up on the scene, walk into the temple, and announce himself on camera to the entire world that he is, um, he is God manifest in the flesh and that he's basically taking over the world. Then, of course, that in their anticipation of what all that means, that will lead to the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, which will be the, the um, circumstances of greatest turmoil and devastation, leading to a final battle surrounding the city of Jerusalem, which is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And in that Battle of Armageddon, they expect that temple, that newly rebuilt temple, to then be destroyed and removed. So... That leads us then to, in their viewpoint, the second coming of Christ, and that when the Lord returns in the second coming, he has his own plans to build according to, this is not what I believe, but this is according to the dispensational viewpoint, they believe that the Lord will return and that following the judgment that he will bring about in his return, he will then set about on a building project of his own in which on that same exact temple mount, he will build what would then be the third temple. So there's the original Solomon's temple, and then there is the temple that they're anticipating to take place in the events of the Great Tribulation, and then there will be a third, and in their viewpoint, final temple that will then last for a thousand years of world history during the time period that they are anticipating, which is an earthly millennial time period, a kind of golden age on earth. 
And it's in that perspective that they believe the kingdom of God will be established on earth. Jesus will establish his throne in the holy of holies of that millennial temple and will sit down upon his throne and from there will rule over planet earth for the thousand years of the earthly millennium that they're anticipating. All right, so why have I gone into that whole background scenario? I wanted you to understand that when we come to a prophecy like this one in Ezekiel, in which Ezekiel is talking about some future yet-to-be-built temple, and he describes it. I'll just read again verse 28 of Ezekiel 37. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So in Ezekiel's description, this yet-to-be-rebuilt or newly built future temple is going to be a temple that has a forevermore aspect to it. Now, I don't know what um, what perspective for the word forevermore forms in your mind, but I think the pretty straightforward understanding of the concept and the one that it forms in my mind is once whatever he's talking about, once it's established, it will never go away. It will last forevermore. Now, um, the issue, of course, then is when, what's the nature of this temple and when will it be built? And the person is asking, who has heard me teach on this subject before, since the temple will never be built again, in my viewpoint, what sanctuary is being spoken of here? So really, there's, there, in my viewpoint, there's only a couple of possibilities. And while there's only a single verse in chapter 37 of Ezekiel referencing these, this future yet-to-be-built temple, there is a large, much, much larger section in much greater detail that's in the prophecy of Ezekiel. It's well worth reading. We certainly won't have time to read it tonight. But uh, just jump a couple of chapters over for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 40. And I'm just going to read a few verses. And I'll start in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 40. And this is the... Ezekiel was given by the Lord as a prophet of God during the extreme circumstance of Israel's captivity in Babylon. He was given a series of visions by the Lord. And each one of these visions was meant to establish the heart's of the captured people of God, the enslaved people of God in Babylon, to establish their hearts in a more eternal perspective. Because their present circumstance was so extreme, their hearts were wavering in their relationship with the Lord, and their their faith was at an exceptionally low ebb. And these visions that the Lord gave to Ezekiel were meant to encourage and strengthen and anchor their hearts to the Lord, but in a much more spiritual and eternal perspective. And this is the final vision that the Lord gives to Ezekiel. Someday, I mean, I, I, I have no idea whether the Lord will allow me to ever get to it, but someday I would love to teach through the entire book of Ezekiel in context. But in this final vision, it's a long one, and it lasts starting from chapter 40 for the next several chapters of Ezekiel. And I'll just read the first few verses here. It is... A description, detail by detail, 
of the temple to be built that the Lord, through Ezekiel, just referenced in a couple of verses back in chapter 37. But here he describes it as the Lord intends for it to be built. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, that's the city of Jerusalem, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. Meaning, as Ezekiel was experiencing this, he was, he was literally physically located in Babylon, and he was not free to just get up and travel back to Jerusalem. But while his physical body was in captivity, his soul was not, and the Lord literally lifted him up and carried him in the vision to the city of Jerusalem and began to show him in the vision the Lord's future plans. So in verse 2, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you have seen, all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six, six, six cubits long. And it goes on from there and starts to describe how this angel, this man who is actually an angel, how this man is measuring like a surveyor. But this is a spiritual survey. He's measuring the temple area where this yet-to-be-built temple was planned not by Israel so much, but by the Lord himself to be built on this location. And so the next several chapters of the book go into what you and I might even consider to be exhausting detail about the construction, the plans of the Lord, the, the blueprints in writing of the Lord's plan for this structure to be built. So the question is, what is this structure exactly? It's certainly called the temple of God. And when is it to be built? The where is resolved because this is all in relationship to the city of Jerusalem. But the, but the when and the nature of the structure to be built is, are questions that need to be answered. So for the dispensationalists, they would say, this can't possibly be the, the great tribulation temple the next temple to be built. And why would they say that? Because of the Ezekiel 37 passage that says that the the temple to be built is going to be a forevermore temple. And of course, the one in their viewpoint that's built during the Great Tribulation that the Antichrist will use to announce his takeover of planet Earth, um, that temple will be destroyed at, at the Battle of Armageddon in their view, so it can't possibly fit into the forevermore category. So they believe that the temple that's being described in these chapters is a future millennial temple that the Lord himself will oversee the construction of following the second coming return of the Lord to planet earth. Now there are issues that are then raised in that scenario and I don't want to get into too much detail about just critiquing the dispensational viewpoint, but I'll just highlight one issue in particular. One of the details that's specified throughout the 
the following chapters in the construction of Ezekiel's temple is the animal sacrifice system is being described in detail and the restart, so to speak, of that sacrificial system. So the question for the dispensationalists and what they need to resolve and what they need to answer is, why would there be, after the second coming of Christ, a rebuilt physical stone temple in the city of Jerusalem wherein animal sacrifices are being offered on a daily basis? When, clearly... Um, The book of Hebrews has taught us, and we went through the entire book of Hebrews chapter by chapter and verse by verse here in our Thursday night studies uh, not too long ago. And we saw clearly that the Lord made it exceptionally clear through Paul the Apostle that the animal sacrifice system, which functioned during the tabernacle in the days of Moses, leading all the way up to Solomon, and then the temple from the days of Solomon forward, all the way until the end of the Old Covenant, the animal sacrifice system served a very important purpose. It was a symbolic representation of the Lord's plan of salvation, primarily focused around the events of the Day of Atonement, but also represented by other, all the other details of the sacrificial system. And they were all pointing forward to one singular future sacrifice. What is that singular future sacrifice? Sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. But once Jesus shed his blood on the cross, the sacrificial system had fulfilled its symbolic, typological purpose of pointing forward to the future. the, the, The substance that that sacrificial system pointed forward to as a shadow, the substance was the sacrifice of Jesus And once that was accomplished, there is no longer any need for animal sacrifices. And they actually serve a confusing purpose once Christ has clearly been revealed as having died for our sins. So the question would be, why in the world would the Lord restart the animal sacrificial system? And dispensationalists that that are somewhat theologically well-grounded would say, well... You're right about that issue. So they can't, those sacrifices in the millennial temple, the future millennial temple can't possibly be for atonement purposes. So we're we're just going to say, even though Ezekiel never says a peep about their conclusion, they say, well, it's just going to serve as a memorial reminder of the sacrifices of the old covenant. So the Lord is going to slaughter literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals throughout the thousand-year time period of the millennium. Because remember, there were daily sacrifices offered. So you have a thousand years in their viewpoint, a thousand years of a millennium times 365 days per year of that thousand years. And how many, how many days are there going to be sacrifices offered? Someone help me with the math here. 365,000 days, right? 1,000 times 365. 365,000 days minimum, that means 365,000 animals are going to be slaughtered in the millennium for no greater purpose than to just be a memorial, kind of just a reminder of all that the Lord did in the old covenant just to point to Christ in a forward-looking way. And they're saying now he'll reinstitute that 
to point to Christ in a backwards pointing way, which honestly to me makes literally no sense whatsoever. And the Bible never asserts that, never insists upon that, never teaches that, never mentions that. As I mentioned a moment ago, there's no peep about such a concept. But they have to come up with some reason in order to arrive at the conclusion that this must be the millennial temple. So I don't believe this is the millennial temple. And in fact, I believe that the temple that's described in Ezekiel's prophecy is not describing a future yet to be built physical structure at all. I believe it's entirely what we would call symbolic or a type pointing forward to some future greatest yet in a sense, ideal temple. And what would that be? So in the Old Covenant, the sanctuary of God, the meeting place between God and man, what the Lord himself called my house, because both the tabernacle and the temple were identified by the Lord as my house, where I dwell in the midst of my people, them and their houses, me and my house, but his house in the center of the, the community of his covenant people. That was the tabernacle during the days of Moses leading up to Solomon and from the days of Solomon forward was the stone physical temple. And then Jesus comes and establishes what he clearly calls a new covenant relationship with the Lord. And then the question remains, what is the house of the Lord in the new covenant? Because whatever the house of the Lord in the new covenant is, it can be rightly called the temple of the new covenant. And there's only one right answer to answer the question, what is the house of the Lord in the new covenant? And so I'll ask you, you've been well taught, you should know this clearly without any confusion. What is the house of the Lord in the new covenant? It's the church. And what is the church? The church is the saved and redeemed, the born again, gathered people of God. So there's a universal church, which is all of the saved at any given moment in history on earth. And then there are little, little small local pockets of that, which are the individual and localized expressions of the church, what we call the local churches. And those the Lord identifies as his house, his sanctuary, his his meeting place, his tabernacle, his temple, using Old Covenant terminology. Now, let me just remind us of this with three quick references. These are all New Testament references. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I won't go into detail in these passages. I've pretty much made the point I want to make, but I want to give you some specific New Testament links to the concept that I've described. I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, For we, and he's talking here about the, the apostolic team that is ministering the gospel to the Corinthians, we are God's fellow workers, you These are the saved people that now are identified as the church in the city of Corinth. You are God's field. And he uses now a second image to describe them. God's building. 
Now, in the Old Covenant, what was God's building? In the days of Moses, it was the tabernacle. In the days of Solomon and beyond, it was the temple. God's building was the tabernacle and then later identified as the temple. And now Paul says that the people of God, including those that were saved in Corinth, are now identified by the Lord himself as God's new covenant building. So Paul goes on using that imagery, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, meaning Christ is the foundation of the new covenant house of God, the new covenant building, the new covenant temple. Now, verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This is the day of judgment and the fiery standard that the Lord will apply on the day of judgment. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then this definitive conclusion in verse 16. Do you, and he's speaking to the church, do you not know that you are God's temple? He does not say, and this is critically important for us to remember and to understand in relationship to answering this question biblically, he does not say, you are one of God's temples. If he had said you are one of God's temples, that would at least leave open the possibility that the church is in some sense the temple of God, but in some other sense, there still needs to be a physical stone structure identified as the church in the city of Jerusalem, and that they both are their own version of the temple of God. But Paul does not speak in those terms. He speaks to the church and he says, Again, definitively. And we can, without twisting the meaning of Paul's words, we can say exclusively. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? So there's only one temple in the new covenant. There's not two. There's not three. There's not future ones to be built. There is one singular spiritual structure that the old covenant tabernacle and temple symbolically pointed forward to. And that singular spiritual structure is still under construction. The construction began technically on the day of Pentecost, and it continues through the entire duration of what we call the church age or until the second coming of Christ, when the structure will be completed and finished by the Lord himself. But we shouldn't mistake that there's only a single temple. Second passage, Ephesians chapter 2. And I, again, I, I just need to say, I wouldn't have to go into this much detail were it not for this contrary perspective that's so popular in modern day Christianity based in this dispensational perspective about there's still to be a stone temple to, yet to be built and then it's going to be destroyed and then yet another one is going to be built. And that somehow the Ezekiel temple is going to find its fulfillment in those future temples. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. 
Paul writes, So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, cornerstone was the first and most important architectural stone laid in a new structure that was that was um, started in the ancient world. And in a sense, it functioned kind of like a three-dimensional blueprint of the entire structure that was to be built on top of it. And so he's saying, spiritually, Christ is that most important stone in this building project. And he goes on to identify exactly what that building project is. In whom, verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church, again, here in the Ephesians 2 passage, is clearly identified and identified with the temple of God. But the new temple, the the spiritual temple made of a different kind of material than the temple of the old covenant. And then the third passage in 1 Peter will give us that final detail. So let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. An important final detail. Starting to read in um, verse 4. 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, that's to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, and he's speaking here, of course, to the redeemed community, to the born again, to the, to the saved, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, For it stands in Scripture, and here he references Old Testament prophecy. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, Peter identifies that there is a new temple that the Lord is is engaged in building, currently engaged in building. He's so far been building it ever since his death, resurrection, and ascension. He started the project then, and he's continuing the building project until our day, and will continue until the second coming of Christ. But he is not building, and he has no plans or purposes or intentions to build a structure on earth made out of physical stones, but he is building this structure out of what Peter calls living stones, meaning he's building the structure out of people. He's building it out of us who are saved. And that structure is a temple, but it's not a lesser temple than the temple of Solomon. It's a much greater temple, and it is the only temple, therefore, that can possibly last forevermore. And so the connection for me is the new covenant temple is the only possible right understanding of Ezekiel's prophetic reference to a forevermore temple. It's the spiritual temple that 
is currently under construction, but when the second coming occurs, that process of building will be completed, the temple will be finalized, the Lord will fully and finally move into that structure, calling it his forever home, and because it's his forever home, it will last forever. All right, so identify Ezekiel's temple with the new covenant temple, which is a spiritual temple made of living spiritual stones with Christ as the chief foundation stone, the cornerstone, and not with a future to be built physical stone structure. All right, that uh, I think adequately answers the first one. Let's tackle a second one, which which is actually related to the first question, but a little bit different. This question says, what should our heart and mindset be as we enter church on a Sunday morning and why? Should church be considered a holy place, the same as the tabernacle and temple of the Old Covenant? Or is the structure not as important since the temple is now believers? What level of importance should we place on the aesthetics or the feeling, the mood that is established by the church building in which we meet? All right, so this is an important question. And uh, the way the question was asked, kind of, uh, and this is no direct comment on the person that was asking this, it's just a good representative way to tackle this issue. It kind of represents a mixture of theological perspectives, one of which is true, biblical, and spiritual, and the other of which is not true, ultimately unbiblical, and it's more a natural perspective, but it's a very understandable natural perspective. But I don't care how understandable natural perspectives are, they're not to rule our understanding of the things that the Lord is uh, speaking to us about, the important symbols like temple, uh, like church, what, what that really means. So when I mean by there's a, a kind of a mixture going on here, the person clearly that asked this question clearly understood that people are the, the, the building blocks of the new covenant temple because they, this part of their question is the structure not as important since the temple is now believers. So they've heard this teaching before, they've understood it, they've embraced it, they accept it. But in the way they asked the question, they also left some some implication, at the very least, that there's a different definition and understanding of church. And I'm going to use a couple of their phrases from their question to make my point. Uh, They referred to on a typical Sunday morning, when we enter church. Now, when I say that phrase, what kind of image comes to your mind? You entering church on Sunday morning, what do you think of? I'm not talking about what happens after you come in. I'm talking about the imagery of entering church on Sunday morning. What does that, what picture does that create in your mind? For most of us, it would probably create the image of walking through these front doors at the back of the sanctuary. And on a typical Sunday morning, you'll see Ken out there. You'll see Bob out there. They're friendly. They're greeting the people that are walking in the door. People are walking in the door and finding their seat. That's the the imagery usually conveyed by when we enter church on Sunday morning. 
What's wrong about that description, though, from a biblical perspective of what we just focused on in the first question? Yeah, we don't enter church on Sunday morning. We don't enter church on Thursday night, which is what, where we're at tonight. We're at Thursday night Bible study. But when I walked through those doors, I didn't enter church. And on Sunday morning when I walked through those doors, I didn't enter church. Because that clearly indicates and, and implies in a very spiritually significant way that sh- I should not be implying that this structure in which we're meeting is identified as the church. We just happen to be the current people filling the structure. But the structure is more identified as the church than the people that are using the structure. Their second uh, way of describing this was, should church be considered a holy place, was part of their question. And again, that identifies church with the place of meeting of the people who actually are the church. So I don't have to take us back to the Peter passage that we just read and, and emphasize again, but I'll just reference it. Peter talks about the church in the New Covenant using structure imagery. The church consists of individual living stones, which are not just thrown together in a pile, but are added to a currently existing structure. So I am a, because only because I was born again by the saving grace of God, I am a spiritually living stone. And I was added by the Lord to a currently already existing spiritual structure. When was I added to that structure? For me, it was February of 1979, far in the far distant recesses of ancient history. February of 1979, when I was born again. In that moment that I experienced the new birth, I became a living stone, and the Lord slotted me in to the under construction structure of the spiritual living church that he identifies as his house, his new covenant temple. So it's just not even right for me to refer to this. How many places have we, for you long-termers, how many places have we met as a church during the years of the existence of this church? I can think of, we, we started out, the very, the very first place was we rented a school uh, over in Chatsworth. Then we moved into a, a, prop, a, a large property that we owned for a period of time. Then we moved from there to um, a, uh, uh, a, another, another facility on Topanga Canyon Boulevard. And then we moved further down Topanga Canyon Boulevard to a, a second floor of a of a uh, kind of like a strip center and then we moved from there to this current location where we meet you know for the last several years none of those physical buildings should properly be called in our understanding church but what what if you were interacting with someone that didn't know the lord and you had it on your heart to invite them to church how would you go about doing that? You would say, our church is on the corner of Wilbur and Plummer, and we meet 9 o'clock in the morning, 
to till 11 o'clock. And that would, there would be nothing wrong with you describing it that way. Or if someone happened to be describing in their perspective, uh, you know, where is your church? And you would say, oh, it's, we're at the corner of Wilbur and Plummer. You wouldn't stop and correct their misunderstanding, go into a detailed explanation like I've just done for you tonight. Of, no, 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 you completely misunderstand. That's an old covenant perspective. And, you know, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, and now we're living stones and it's not the building, it's the people. You probably wouldn't try to explain all of that to them because they would have no, no common frame of reference to understand what you were describing. But if they came to know the Lord and they became part of the church, somewhere along the line of their growing in the Lord and their discipleship to the Lord and their study of Scripture, someone would need to explain to them the distinction between traditions that have grown up in the Christian community around describing church versus biblical descriptions of the church. So it is a traditionally accepted thing to refer to the building as the church, but the church is not defined by the location where it meets. It's not defined that way at all. Now, um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of examples, I could give you an example from uh, one of my visits to Kenya. Um, I, I think you guys might remember the videos I took and the pictures I took and the description of us, you know, our ministry team driving across this desert landscape uh, with no roads, I, I still to this day don't know how our guide got us from where we started to where we ended up. And we arrived at this incredibly large, beautiful shade tree out in the middle of the desert. And there were approximately 300 believing Kenyans that were gathered directly around that tree, using it as shade from a very hot desert sun. And it was Sunday morning. And it was their Sunday service. And we got out of our vehicle and shared their Sunday service with them and had the opportunity to minister to them and be a blessing to them. But would I say, if someone asked me, you know, what church did you preach at on Sunday morning? I wouldn't say, the tree over there is the church that I preached at. Would the tree be the church? Obviously not. The tree was just a very wisely chosen location for their meetings because it was the only shade available in the entire area and provided some comfort, physical comfort from a very hot desert sun uh, for the duration of their long Sunday service. And their Sunday service is much longer than ours. Um, Another example from ancient history. How many of you ever heard of the Roman catacombs? During an era of the intense persecution that the first century church experienced, um, the, the believing community in Rome at one point stopped meeting above ground because of the threat of persecution, and they agreed to go into the catacombs. Now, what were the catacombs? They weren't just, wow, beautiful underground um, location. What were the catacombs? Yeah, burial ground. They were tombs. Can you imagine, okay, where are we going to meet this Sunday? We're going to the local graveyard, and we're going to meet there because no one will find us there, and we'll be free to worship the Lord and to, to fellowship and pray together and study God's word without fear of persecution. 
But that's exactly what the church did. So was the church defined by the catacomb that they met in? No, it was just the best location and the provision of the Lord for the, for the security of his people. So the catacomb was no more the church than the tree in Kenya was the church for the people that I met with. And so to answer the question, and the way they phrased it at the end was, um, is the structure where the church meets, is the structure not as important since the temple is now believers? And the answer to that is, definitively, yes, you're right. The structure is not as important as the people who are meeting in that structure. And then this question, what level of importance should we place on the aesthetics or feeling or mood of a church building? I would say next to none in terms of importance. Now, does that mean that if we happen to have only one building available for us that was large enough to accommodate all of us meeting together and as we entered that structure, it happened to be just a mess. Should we just go ahead and, and have our meeting in the midst of that mess when we had every ability to clean that mess up and make it look a little nicer and a little bit more presentable? I'm all in favor of caretaking whatever the Lord provides for us. You know, we, of course, rent this facility. It doesn't belong to us. It's not ours. But we have a responsibility to caretake it, to to be good stewards of the facility that we rent so that we don't tear up what belongs to someone else. So I, I'm in favor of that. I appreciate all the, uh, the recent improvements they've made on the interior and the exterior of the facility. But it's not like the church is being beautified by those improvements. The structure, the facility of our meetings, the meeting place itself is being beautified but you can have the most beautiful facility in the world, the most mood-enhancing physical facility in the world, and some so-called churches have exactly that, and the people that are meeting there are as spiritually ugly as they can possibly be. And so, yes, the emphasis is on not so much the aesthetics of the meeting place, but all of the emphasis is on the spiritual condition of the people that are using that location. All right, I think we have just enough time for one more question tonight. Let me move right into that and tackle it. This is a question about John the Baptist, and it relates to something we've studied. We've studied it uh, in two, from two directions. Uh, they were asking a question about a prophecy in the book of Malachi, and we did a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse expositional study through Malachi together on Thursday nights. And then they asked a related question from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11 and chapter 17, which has to do with John the Baptist. And uh, so we have studied this in detail, and I will just reference, if you want to go into this in more detail, on Sermon Audio, I did entire studies, two entire studies that were dedicated to this question. Uh, One in the book of Malachi, the, if you're searching under the series in Malachi, the, the study toward the end of the series entitled Final Words focused on this issue. And in the Matthew study, the study uh, from chapter 11 entitled He is Elijah also focused on this. But let me just briefly read the question and try to answer it in the time we have left. So from Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6, 
Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15, and Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. And I won't read those three passages, but wanted to get those references for you to look up in your own time. The Malachi passage is at the very end of the book of Malachi, who is the final prophet of the Old Testament, and it represented the final inspired word from God through an Old Testament prophet until the arrival of John the Baptist. So there's this 400-year silent period where the Lord has stopped speaking to his old covenant people, Israel. But in the final words that he spoke through Malachi and the, the final portion of his final words, he, the Lord through Malachi gives a, a prophecy of the return of the prophet Elijah just before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And that Elijah is going to reappear on the stage of history and he is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and really the hearts of the, the children to the, to the fathers and all of that representing a time of, of greatly needed restoration of relationship, spiritual relationship, because the people of God have drifted so far from the Lord. And then in the two Malik, excuse me, the two Matthew passages, one in chapter 11 and one in chapter 17, the Lord in teaching his disciples basically said to them that that Malachi prophecy about the return of Elijah was never meant to be understood in a literal physical sense in which the actual man, Elijah, who lived during an earlier time in Israel's history would come back and start to minister to Israel again. Instead, what Jesus told his disciples is that that prophecy had already been fulfilled in the arrival and the ministry of John the Baptist. And then in, uh, the person asking the question didn't reference this, but in Luke's gospel, the Lord is quoted as saying that when John the Baptist ministered, he did so in the spirit and power of the Old Testament prophet, Elijah. And Jesus said to his disciples, John was Elijah. Not literally Elijah, but he fulfilled what that Elijah prophecy was pointing forward to. And the reason for that, of course, in a nutshell, is that Elijah, among all the prophets of God, played a very special role. Just like among all the prophets of God, Moses played a very special role. What was the main role of Moses? The main role. He was the bringer of the law of God. Now, he did other very important things like leading the exodus out of, out of Egypt for the people of God. But his primary spiritual assignment was the revelation of the, the law of God. So Elijah played a secondary only to Moses, a secondarily super important role. And what was that? He was the restorer of the law because during all the generations between Moses and Elijah, the people of God had drifted so far from God that they had drifted away from the laws of God, substituting their own ways for God's ways and God's standards. And so John the Baptist arrives on the scene and what's his primary assignment is to bring the people back to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with his law as a preparation for the arrival of the Messiah and as the transition introduction from Old Covenant to New Covenant and the fulfillment 
being focused on the arrival of the Messiah. So the question this person asked about those passages was this. It seems abundantly clear. This is their question. It seems abundantly clear, but just to be absolutely sure, the prophecy of Elijah coming again is in fact John the Baptist. So that's not so much a question, that's a statement, but they're, they're not sure about the statement. I'll just say they're absolutely right. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. Now the next part of their question was, where is it written that Elijah slash John the Baptist will be thrown into prison and beheaded? In other words, where in prophecy are those details about what would happen to John the Baptist? And of course, it absolutely did. King Herod, at a certain point, had John the Baptist arrested, and he kept him imprisoned for a period of time, interviewing him on a regular basis. But ultimately, because of the insistence of Herod's wife and her daughter, uh, he had John the Baptist beheaded. He was executed in that way. So they're questioning and wondering where in the Old Testament prophecies are those details given? And the answer is, those details are never given in any Old Testament prophecy. Those are things we discover in the actual narrative telling of the story, uh, the real life story of John the Baptist. Uh, We don't need those details given in Old Testament prophecy. There are two passages and only two passages in the Old Testament that reference the coming of John the Baptist and describe his ministry. And it's, those two passages focus our attention on the essentials of what the arrival of John the Baptist is really all about. So one of those is that last passage in Malachi that I've already, already described, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. The other is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. This is the only other Old Testament prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's turn over there and read it just for a moment, or you can just listen as I read it. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, and this is the John the Baptist portion. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now, we would not necessarily know, just reading through Isaiah's prophecy, unless the New Testament clued us into this interpretation and application, we would not necessarily know that this is the story of John the Baptist's ministry assignment from the Lord. We might just think the Lord is describing in, in spiritual and poetic, poetically symbolic terminology something, some great thing he's going to do in the future, that there's going to be a voice out of the wilderness and that the result of that voice speaking is going to level the mountains down and the valleys up, making everything like a smooth plain. We would not necessarily know that that was John the Baptist. But the New Testament tells us and, and quotes it and applies it to John the Baptist 
that this was all about a description of his ministry. And that's exactly what he did. But John the Baptist didn't come with a big earth-moving machine and literally level mountains and fill up valleys. So in, in what sense is that portion of this prophecy fulfilled in John's ministry? What he did was his preaching ministry was like a spiritual earth-moving machine. And the earth were the hearts of the people. So the, the, the exalted mountains that needed to be leveled were the proud and arrogant among Israel. And the, the deep valleys that needed to be filled up were the, the poor and the needy and the, the, the oppressed. And so the Lord used John to kind of just spiritually level all the people and make everybody aware of their need for a savior, their need for the coming Messiah. He was the introducer of the Messiah. But in terms of all the other details of what actually happened to John the Baptist, you know, the way he dressed, um, special clothing that he wore, the special diet that he ate, um, the exact words that he spoke um, when he was arrested by Herod, the nature of his imprisonment, the questions that he later had after being imprisoned and seemingly in his perspective abandoned by the Lord and sending to Jesus a contingent of his disciples to question and say, are you really the Messiah? I, you know, I, I, I thought you were, but maybe you weren't because I'm just rotting in this prison. And then how Jesus answered him. And then, of course, the eventual beheading of John in that imprisonment. All of those details are saved for the narrative. The Lord doesn't give us an excessive amount of details in prophecy because the main spotlight of what John was to do was simply to arrive on the scene, get the hearts of God's people ready for the arrival of the Messiah, and then back out of the spotlight because the spotlight was to immediately shift to Christ. So this is where John himself says, um, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. The whole point being the focus either in Old Testament prophecy or in his actual life story was not meant to stay on him. All right, so uh, that brings us to the end of these three questions for open study tonight. I've got uh, some other excellent questions uh, that we'll start with next Thursday night and then um, we'll have a break uh, two weeks from tonight for our Thanksgiving holiday and then we'll come back, Lord willing, for Steve to restart after that in December to restart the, um, the ongoing study through systematic theology. God bless you tonight.